following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Hey everybody, good evening. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 14 out of an practically indefinite, well, really a literally indefinite uh, number of episodes. <laughs> it's certainly undefined. I can't tell you how many episodes we're going to be doing uh, on um, Morgoth's Ring. But hey, uh, I, I, I'm not apologizing. Uh, so welcome back uh, to our long-running discussion of Morgoth's Ring. Um, I want to jump into the debate of the Valar, uh, but first, a quick announcement and a quick reminder. So the announcement is... Uh, um, the announcement is that... Uh, oh, oh, yeah, it's right there. I, I now remember the announcement. Um I wanted to make sure everybody remembered about our summer startup special for PATH. So the Signum PATH program, of course, which we just launched this current month is our very first month. Uh, and we're coming up uh, towards the end of our enrollment period for our July courses, which start on the 6th of July, uh, Monday, the 6th of July. Um, so I urge you to uh, check that out and look into our PATH courses. And we are running a special where if you sign up for a July course, you get an August course for free. So this is a, uh, you know, this is an entire free course, um, uh, which you get if you sign up for a course in July. So I just encourage people to look into that path.signumuniversity.org. Uh, you know, we really were excited about our new program and we, you know, we want to encourage people to check it out. Um, so. That is uh, 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 that is what we're uh, uh, what 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 I wanted to, to remind you of. The second thing, um, just quick, um, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, awesome, Kevin. Kevin was mentioning that. Uh, his sister and brother-in-law both work for HR. Um, good. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. If you know people who work in HR, we think that this would be a phenomenal resource for companies uh, and would love to talk to HR folks uh, just to kind of explain about our new program and, uh, uh, you know, help them to, to you know, take one of our courses, see what it's about. Um, yeah, absolutely love to do that. Thanks, Kevin, for passing that along. Um, Awesome. And uh, uh, the quick reminder is just that uh, I'm going to have to take a little hiatus here in a little bit. Not immediately. right? We've got class tonight. We'll have class again next week uh, on July 1st. Next Wednesday being July 1st, 2020. Um, but then for the following two weeks, I'm going to have to take a hiatus. Um, I, As I mentioned before, I have a massive deadline that is coming up and I am... Uh, uh, to the wall, trying to get everything done here for my big, big deadline. So um, I'm going to have to take some time out. Unfortunately, uh, I always look forward to class time uh, because this is uh, this is like my fun time every week. But uh, I, <laughs> I have strict no fun rule uh, over that fortnight uh, and then look forward to getting back after that. So um Excellent. Great. Oh, yeah. Chris was saying he just finished up the first class in the uh, in the personal development badge. Yeah. Great. Great. Excellent. Uh, uh, well worth the time, he says. Very good. Very good. Um, cool. All right. So um, those are the two reminders I wanted to uh, uh, to remind you about. Let us jump back into the great metaphysical debate among the Valar. Um, 
There's a lot to really talk about here. Let me do a, a quick sort of reframing as we're approaching this, because as I, as I said last time, there are several things that I want to be looking at. Obviously, we want to look at how Tolkien is continuing to develop uh, these sort of metaphysical principles that he's working out, right? You know, he is, he is thinking through some of these really big questions. And this is one of the places where... I am most reminded, you know, I keep telling, I keep saying, you know, when we're discussing things, um, uh, when, when we're discussing things in class and you guys keep, you know, firing away these like really interesting questions, um, these are exactly the kinds of questions that Tolkien himself was, uh, was considering. And one of the things that we can see in the debate, which I find really fun, is you can actually see like he puts these questions, uh, you know, in these sort of different uh, different questions, different perspectives uh, in the mouths of the different Valar, right, during the course of this debate. So we can see here most explicitly, right, we can see here most explicitly him uh, uh, thinking through this issue from different angles and trying to sort of resolve it. This seems to me, I think, a much more profitable... I mean, he seems to be working through this stuff much more fluidly uh, here in this context um, now that he's putting dialogue into people's mouths instead of just uh, uh, trying to do the kind of more abstract sort of Q&A thing that he was doing before. Um, uh, this seems to be working much better and he's uh, sort of making more progress, but I still think he's discovering as he goes here. Um, I don't think that this is a question of, and this is just my opinion, uh, you know, my interpretation of it, but I don't think that this is Tolkien trying to find a way to explain a principle, you know, some principles that he had decided upon. I think that this is the process by which Tolkien was was deciding on these principles, trying to answer these questions for himself. Um, and that's what f one of the things that for me makes this so exciting to look at. So we want to be thinking about this as, uh, you know, be looking at the development of these ideas and these concepts as he's working them through. But, of course, we get this special bonus in this instance, right? And that is that the characters uh, into whose mouths he is putting the direct dialogue, right? The characters in whose voices we are hearing this discussion and these ideas and this debate are the Valar themselves, several of whom have never opened their text, their, their mouths in the text before um, and actually had any direct dialogue of any kind. Uh, so it is extremely exciting. I find it extremely exciting. Um, and even those who have spoken at other times, it is very interesting to see how he is positioning uh, them um, and what we can learn about the sort of characteristics of these Valar and the kind of dynamics among them. I think we can learn more from this passage about those things than we can almost anywhere else in all of Tolkien's legendarium. It's I find this a very remarkable piece uh, for that reason. So, this is me not apologizing about taking quite a bit of time in going through this because this is deep stuff, uh, and I certainly have found this whole investigation that we've been doing uh, in Morgoth's Ring so far very rewarding uh, and very cool. I do plan to speed up after we get through uh, we we get through this section here, uh, and then uh, we'll we'll speed up a little bit more as we go through the rest of the later Quenta. 
uh, material. And then we'll slow down a bit again when we get to the Athrobeth. I'm not going to pretend. Uh, so that, that's 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 my plan. My plan of intermittent virtue for the next uh, 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 for the for the rest of this book. Okay, so this is the slide that we ended with last time. This is Aule's opening speech. He's the first one to speak, right? So I just wanted to do a brief review. I'll read it through once just so that we can have that fresh in our minds. Uh, so when we get to like Yovana's response to it and everything, we can be remembering more clearly exactly uh, what Aule had said. I won't talk about this too much because we already discussed it. Um, but I just wanted to, I didn't want to start one passage in. Um, then Aule, friend of the Noldor, added and lover of Feanor, spake. But did this matter indeed arise out of Arda Mard, he asked, for it seemeth to me that it arose from the beginning of Feanaro. Now Finway and all the Noldor that followed him were never in heart or thought swayed by Melkor the Marer. How then did this strange thing come to pass, even in Amon the Unshadowed? That the bearing of a child should lay such a weariness upon the mother that she desired life no longer. This child is the greatest in gifts that hath arisen or shall arise among the Eldar. But the Eldar are the first children of Eru, and belong to him directly. Therefore the greatness of the child must proceed from his will directly, and be intended for the good of the Eldar and of all Arda. What, then, of the cost of the birth? Must it not be thought that the greatness and the cost come not from Arda, marred or unmarred, but from beyond Arda? <coughs> for this we know to be true. And as the ages pass, it shall often be manifest, in small matters and in great, that all the tale of Arda was not in the great theme, and that things shall come to pass in that tale which cannot be foreseen, for they are new and not begotten by the past that preceded them. Added, Thus Aule spake, being unwilling to believe that any taint of the shadow lay upon Feanor, or upon any of the Noldor. He had been the most eager to summon them to Valinor. Okay, um, so... The primary emphasis, and again, that that you know, as I was saying, the thing that the ideas, uh, as I you know, I, I, you know, mentioned last time, the things which seem to me to be you know the the issues, uh, which are kind of cropping up, um, where ultimately the road which has begun with the comparatively simple question about the remarriage of Finway, right, has now led him on towards not just, um you know, questions about the nature of the soul and, of course, then and the nature of marriage as well, uh, with all, um, but has led him actually to eschatological questions, right? He's now thinking about the end of the world, um, which is what eschatological means. Um, he's not thinking about the end of the world. He's thinking about hope. He's thinking about justice. He's thinking about healing. And um, I think forgiveness, that it's not a word he's used. Um, and um, uh, what does the marring of Arda mean? Um, what is the nature of the will, the free will of the elves? What is, um, uh, what is the impact? To what extent are the elves fallen? And how do we understand that? How do we understand the fallen world and its impact on the lives of the elves, right? Um, these are all things that have now arisen and which he is considering plainly. Um, uh, and it's, it's one of the things that I think Again, it's easy to sort of uh, say, you know, wow, the, uh, you know, the uh, fervent that has emerged, you know, out of the uh, the discussion of this remarriage is almost incredible that it would have spun out of control like this. Um, but it's 
it has led directly from one thing to another to things way beyond itself and above itself and to some of now these are the fundamental metaphysical questions of all of Middle Earth that he never answered, right? That he was never really interested in. Being drawn as he was from the very beginning to the two-body problem, right? What about if, there we, if we had mortal men living under the rules that we currently experience, right? I'm not going to change that metaphysically. Um, and then we have the elves, right? Who have immortality, right? Of a specific kind. And what are the differences there, right? And how do they interact? And how does, the, you know, so the, the, that, that, that conception, that idea was central from the very beginning of Tolkien's legendarium, and yet he never thought it through. And of course, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, I'm not saying that critically. I'm not saying that as an insult. It was never the kind of thing that he needed to think through before, not in this way. Um, but now he does. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. So, um, now Bruce says, is Aule's statement that Feanor is the greatest in gifts that shall arise just his praise of Feanor or a foretelling? It sounds like a foretelling, Bruce. I think that he can perceive that um, Feanor is, yeah, Arthur, Feanor's as good as it gets. That's it. I mean, there's never going to be anybody greater than Feanor. There's never going to be anybody more talented, more gifted, more capable um, uh, than Feanor. Um, I, I wonder, Bruce, to, to what extent that statement by Aule is just due to the general sort of... I mean, we've all noticed the pattern before, right, that things tend to decline in Middle-earth um, following rather the medieval than the modern view of the world, which says that the world is in decline and slowly winding down rather than ramping up to a better and better and better future, the idea of progress and constantly moving forward, despite, of course, what we know about thermodynamics. Um, thermodynamics always seemed to me to sort of suggest the Middle, the middle Ages was quite right about the winding down of the world. Um, but anyway, uh, so, I, so I, I wonder, Bruce, to what extent he's just sort of is he foretelling in the sense that, like, a special foretelling has come upon him, that there shall never be a greater than fan? Or it's possible. I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. Or is it just that he is perceiving this is the high water, it's going to be in decline from here, there will be many later who will be great, um, but never again will there be one as great as uh, as um, as Feanor. Um, yeah, okay. Um and uh, and there's no question, Mary, that, of course, Feanor has squandered his gifts, right? I mean, that Feanor does not do well with the gifts that are given to him is very, very clear, right? And, Stephen, it's a really good question. Um, you know, couldn't that stuff about, uh, you know, the, 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 the being the greatest in gifts and that greatness must proceed from Eru's will directly and be intended for the good of all Arda also apply to Melkor? Absolutely. Absolutely, it would. Um, and, of course, those are the clearest parallels, right? Feanor and Melkor, both the greatest among their peers, um, uh, and both fall, right? Not, not identically, but both of them do. Both fail of their promise. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, now David Atley's pointing out that Aule might be at least somewhat biased here. Feanor is the greatest maker, which is how Aule perceives the world. Um, uh, but Feanor is clearly surpassed in other arts of great value. Yes, that's not to say that nothing that any elf ever does will ever compete with everything that anything that Feanor does, right? It's not that he is... His greatness, I think, is not quite as universal across the board as that. But... Um, but I don't think that Aule's statement here doesn't seem to me very controversial. Um, uh, that to Feanor was given the greatest gifts, uh, you know, especially when you like take it on balance, right? Um, of mind, body, skill, talent, insight, beauty, right? I mean, like he's got all the things. It's not to say that there isn't anybody who has one of the things better than he, at least sometimes, right? Um, uh, he doesn't hoard all of the superlatives, just most of them, uh, and certainly has the, you know, the highest median level of greatness across all characteristics. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. But but I but again, I don't think that I'll... So, I mean, is he biased? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, uh, I can see that. But again, but it's not only in making that Feanor is is uh, is the greatest. Um, but, um, okay, let's see. What else was I going to say? Okay, John was asking, is he implying beyond artists? So hang on a second. Let me find the quote there. Um, oh, right. Um uh, what then of the cost of the, must it not be thought that the greatness and the cost come not from Arda, Marda on Marda, but from beyond Arda? Um, uh, John is asking, is this suggest that Fanor is supposed to be, you know, a, a sort of, you know, Messiah figure in some way or a deliverer sent by Eru to overcome Morgoth? Well, so on the one hand, John, it's hard to say what his role was meant to be, right? Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's, there was a a sort of plan anyway, right? Um, what does Aule say about it exactly? That um, just says for the good of the Eldar and of all Arda. It doesn't say it doesn't go into any more detail about exactly what good or how that was supposed to be. So I don't think that that necessarily implies a particular role uh, for Fan or Messianic or otherwise. Um, what he's saying comes from beyond Arda is both... Not only the greatness. The greatness comes from beyond Arda, right? I mean, it, Feanor was designed by Iluvatar because all Fear of the Eldar originate from outside, uh, uh, from outside Arda, right? They are they are they are fed into the system of Arda by Iluvatar um, directly. So I mean, he is the creator of the souls of the children. So. Fan or soul, therefore, uh, 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 you know, uh, clearly was created by Iluvatar. And so, therefore, his greatness comes from Iluvatar. The primary point that Aule is making there is not to make any claims about what Iluvatar's purpose was in doing that, other than what seems to be the theologically based assumption that the intention was a good one, right? The intention was that it was intended for the good of the Eldar and of all Arda. This being Iluvatar's intention was presumably a good idea. The emphasis, of course, that he's making is that the cost, therefore, must also be. You can't blame Feanor, in other words. The death of Muriel is not a result of the shadow, says Aule, right? It's not a result of the shadow. This is not a result of Arda Mard. 
the greatness of Feanor's soul comes from Iluvatar, and therefore the cost to Mirio comes from Iluvatar too. And if we don't understand that, well, it's not shocking that we should not understand that. There's a lot of things that we don't understand because they weren't part of the great theme in the beginning, which is where he's sort of coming from there. Um, yeah. Now, John, you're absolutely right. All things from Eru are good, but yes, once the soul enters Arda, um, then in a sense all bets are off. But see, that's exactly, John, I think, where one of the interesting question com- questions comes in here. Um, what is it that throws off the bets at that point? Why is it that all of the children of Iluvatar do not, like all the elves, all the Eldar, don't, like, play out the good plans that Iluvatar has for them. Don't simply enact the goodness prepared for them by Iluvatar. Fanor, of course, being the case study in this question. Why don't they? So the question is, what, why, th- that they don't is demonstrable, right? Why not? Is it just because of their free will, right? I mean, free will, right? That's a thing. Um, but what influence does the marring of Arda have in that? Are their wills somehow are their fair their fair are joined with bodies and remember that like special coherence between the bodies of elves and the spirits of elves right between their hroa and their fair i mean it's it's does that affect them are they in some sense fallen are they impacted by arda mard is this circumstance a consequence of Arda Mard. Had Arda not been marred by Melkor, would this have happened? Would Muriel have died? That's one of the, again, that's one of the reasons why this issue, right? Why this um, question is so evocative uh, uh, for him. Um, Well, that's the question. John says the bodies are marred. Well, the bodies are of the substance of Arda. And so if Arda's marred, Mightn't the bodies be too? But I'm not stating that. I'm saying that's the question, right? It's one of the things involved. So Aule's initial thing is, look, we got to remember, there is no necessary reason to believe that just because a tragedy happened, it doesn't necessarily mean. It might seem like this is the work of the shadow. You can see the hand of the shadow here in Finway's grief and the tragedy of Muriel. Um, but he says, you know, actually... That doesn't necessarily hold. We don't understand why Iluvatar would doom Muriel to this, right? Why he would lay this upon her um, and bring this about. But it kind of seems like he did. Anyway, this anyway is Aule's point, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, David says, what if Feanor was supposed to surrender up his jewels, sacrificing himself to rejuvenate the glory of Valinor. That could have been his purpose, right? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Um, uh, yeah. Um, Matt says it's the age-old question of why do bad things happen to good people? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that he's kind of dealing with here. He's in deep waters, right? Tolkien has found himself in deep waters. Uh, and and again, the, the whole the question of the remarriage of Finway is just, um, 
you know, that that he finds himself in deep waters. That's just that happens to be the particular boat he jumped out of. Right. Uh, uh, in order to find himself there. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. OK, let's um, let's keep going. However, we have quite a ways. All right. Olmo responds. And death is for the Eldar and evil. That is a thing unnatural in Arda unmarred, which must proceed, therefore, from the marring. OK, so so this is an Olmo's premise. His premise is, OK, OK, say what you like about Fanor coming from Iluvatar and everything else. But premise, the elves are designed to remain that they, they we can see from the connect from the connection. This is me glossing Olmo, right? But um, if I if I could try to gloss Olmo here, um, based on the coherence of their mind and body, right? Um, it's clear that the nature, the fundamental nature of the Eldar, as they are designed by Iluvatar, is for their bodies and souls to remain together for the life of Arda. That's what they're supposed to do. That is what is natural in Arda unmarred. Death, therefore, under any circumstances, any time the body and soul of one of the Eldar is split, that is unnatural. That's an evil. That would never have happened had Arda not been marked. This is Olmo's claim at the beginning. This is his premise. It must, therefore, all death must proceed, therefore, from the marring. For if the death of Muriel... So now we go return to the case study. If the death of Muriel was otherwise and came from beyond Arda as a new thing, having no cause in the past, it would not bring grief or doubt. For Eru is lord of all and moveth all the devices of his creatures, even the malice of the marrer in his final purposes. But he doth not of his prime motion impose grief upon them. But the death of Muriel has brought sorrow to Amon. Olmo takes as proof the grief. Notice he grants Aule's premise, right? Yes, Eru is lord of all, right? Um, and it may be that, in a sense, uh, Iluvatar's action is the direct cause, right? Um, you can say that it's the direct cause because... Uh, He's the one who made Feanor and made Feanor so great, and it's Feanor's greatness that brought about the uh, death of Muriel, and so therefore it was Iluvatar that caused Muriel's death. Uh, no harm, no foul. It has nothing to do with the marring. It has, it's not an evil. Um, and Aule says, dude, yes, it is. Just look around. Look at the grief. Look at the doubt. Look at the concern. Why are we all talking here? Right? If it were not an evil, we wouldn't be worried about it, right? We wouldn't be having this debate in the first place. Eru moveth all the devices of his creatures. Nothing is outside of Iluvatar's control, right? Even the malice of the Marer, even Melkor himself, remember, as Iluvatar tells him in the Ainu Indale, right? Nothing that you can do, you cannot alter the music in my despite. Everything that you do is going to redound to my glory in the end, right? So Olmo is here repeating that doctrine, but he doth not of his prime motion impose grief upon them. I, yeah, Iluvatar does not 
impose grief of his own prime motion. It can be, it can be, um, a, like a side effect, right? It can't, but it is not of, he does not bring grief by his prime motion. Let's keep reading. I know there's a bunch of questions. Let, let me, let me, I know it's not fair for me to stop partway through, do a bunch of glossing and then not take your questions. I shouldn't do that. Um, but I don't want to lose my, uh, I don't want to lose the train completely and we'll come back. The coming of Feanaro must proceed certainly from the will of Eru, but I hold that the marring of his birth comes of the shadow and is a portent of evils to come. For the greatest are the most potent also for evil. Have a care, my brethren, thinking not that the shadow is gone forever, though it is beaten down. Doth it not dwell even now in Amon, though you deem the bonds to be unbreakable? For Olmo had dissented, change to, thus Olmo spake, who had dissented from the councils of the Valar when they brought Melko, Melkor the Marer to Mandos after his defeat. I'm not sure what he wanted done with him. Just push him through into outer darkness right away? Maybe he did. Added, also he loved the elves and men afterwards, but otherwise than Aule, believing that they should be left free, however perilous that might seem. Thus afterwards it was seen that though he loved Feanor and all the Noldor more coolly, he had more mercy for their errors and misdeeds. I love that passage so much, but hang on. Let's, let's focus first on his... Uh, you know, his kind of um, his doctrinal statements, right? And his reasoning. And then we'll come to his character gloss there at the end, which is really fun. Um, okay. Um, Bruce, I don't remember Tolkien using language like prime motion either. And yes, that does sound Aristotelian to me. Um, which is not uh, I have not I mean then this might be my own fault, but I have not generally read Tolkien and find myself continually like hearkening back to Aristotle. Um, but I agree that is more Aristotelian language than I am used to noticing as well. Maybe it's there and I don't notice it, but um I agree with you on that. Okay. Um, okay. So, Stephen, I agree with you. Stephen says, very thoughtfully, it's somewhat tricky to apply traditional theology to this. In traditional Christian theology, the world is flawed because Adam sinned, and we are descendants of Adam, and creation was put under Adam's responsibility and thus was also affected by the fall. Um, but elves don't have an Adam, and none who have fallen of any race are quite in Adam's unique position. Yes, Stephen, that's exactly... That seems to me an accurate statement of the, when I said Tolkien was finding himself in deep waters, that is a, a, a glimpse of the depth of these waters, right? Um, it was one thing to say, casually, in a sense, um, almost, well, not playfully, that would never have been accurate, but um, though there was an element of playfulness, of course, throughout the Book of Lost Tales, 
But back in the old days, right, back when Tolkien was in his early 20s and he was first undertaking this thing, let me tell stories of the, of the ancient days of the elves, right, and imagining this world in which there were these two rational races who had these separate fates and then, you know, they interact with each other and wild hijinks follow. Um, what's gonna, how's that going to happen? How's that going to play out, right? Um, back when Tolkien was sort of doing that initially, Right. Initially imagining that. And I say initially I say initially because I do think that the interaction between the two was a fundamental part of his whole um, legendarium project from the very beginning. Um, And we can see this both in big ways and in small ways, in small ways, because of how we see humans and elves interacting during the stories themselves with Baron and Luthien, of course, as the absolute centerpiece of that issue, but not being exclusively the one, of course, um, the only one. Um, uh, even the way in which the Turin Turambar story, which has always been, you know, one of the central stories of his entire legendarium and the way that that interacts with and sort of plays off of the, and the way that it kind of contemplates the human situation in the midst of the largely elvish legendarium, right, is, is, um, Again, to me, testimony of this same sort of thing. So in in small particular examples, we see him very interested in what happens when these two rational races operating under the same general circumstances, that is, in the same world, right, but having sundered fates, what happens when they take part in the same stories? What are those stories like? But we also see it in bigger bigger ways, like bigger picture ways. Um, and in particular here, I'm thinking about, um, and I say, I say from the beginning, I'm thinking about the way in which the fundamental premise of the Book of Lost Tales was how human beings, having become the dominant race in the world and the firstborn having faded and fled in large part from the world, how they, how we as a species relate backwards historically to the elves that were. So in that larger sense, the like, how do we, the aftercomers, those of those, you know, we who remain here, uh, you know, going about the world and thinking we own the place, how do we connect backwards to the ancient stories of this elder race um, and whose fate is different and other and sundered from ours, right? Um, So in those ways, both the, like, humans and elf characters interacting within the stories and those big picture ways, because that was the fundamental premise of the Book of Lost Tales, the elvish the stories of elvish history that come down among men and from which which we then interact with and learn from and think about right so um so in some ways i say again this premise of what does it mean to have two different rational races with these two different fates living together has been there from the very beginning, but he never found himself on these kinds of theological grounds, dealing with precisely the kinds of questions that Stephen is describing, right? Um, it's fine to say. You can say all you like. Um, well, sure. So, you know, Tolkien is building a world which is fundamentally consistent with Christianity. He is, and he says that. Um, And I believe that he means that when he says that. Um, uh, But, 
there are issues along the way. And, and this exactly is one, Stephen. I think this is one of the biggest picture issues, right? Um, what about original sin? What about the marring of Arda? And how exactly does it play in? Um, that's, that's why this is such a huge question. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, all right. So, so let's back up a second. So again, so almost first premise was death is an evil. Elves wouldn't die. Right now I saw somebody, was it, uh, David, somebody had a, um, uh, an objection to this from the beginning. Oh, yeah, there you go. It was David. Okay. Uh, David says, Death by Misadventure must have been part of the plan all along. Well, I don't think so. I don't think must. I'm not saying I could prove it wasn't. I'm not saying it can't have been. But I don't, but I, I don't agree with a must. Remember that... Elves are hard to kill. At least they've become harder to kill as time has gone on. Um, remember all the business about the coherence and even in the elder days, how they, uh, um, Bruce says we're back to Muriel falling off a cliff. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's already clear. I mean, it's, it's explicitly said that elves can recover from injury and disease and things, uh, that humans can't possibly recover from. Um, so the question uh, the theoretical question there, David, I think would be, um, would that have been unlimited, essentially? Right? <laughs> this sort of invites like a, you know, uh, a, an elvish version of Groundhog Day, right? Uh, try, trying to f find theoretical ways for elves to destroy their Roa uh, so that they're to force their Fea to leave it. Um, which, of course, they wouldn't want to do in Artemard. So, you know, you can't uh, you can't kind of go there. I agree that it's a little hard for me to imagine that no circumstance could ever possibly arise that would result in the um, complete destruction of the Roa of um, of one of the Eldar. Um, but then again, I think the answer to that would be. But that's just because I can't imagine Arda unmarred, right? Uh, remember that things like extremes of heat and cold and things like that were some of the, those are some of the things that were invented by those are Melkor's contributions to Arda, right? Um, the I don't know. I mean, I, I I don't know. I don't know what Arda unmarred would look like. I don't know how it would work. I don't know how it might be different. But I don't think it's necessarily true um, that death by misadventure must always have been inevitable uh, in some cases. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, Brian says there would be no dumb, rebellious teenagers in Arda Unmarred. Yes, there would be no candidates for the Darwin Award in Arda Unmarred. Um, yes, yes, that's true. Um um, okay. Um, 
Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. Now. Okay. Hang on, Christopher. I'm going to make sure I remember to come back to your comment there for a second. Okay. Initial premise. Death is an evil. You can tell they are they are already affected by Arda unmarred. So that um, his premise, therefore, extending that premise to the Muriel situation, um, you can Aule can say that the cost of Feanor's birth, since the power of Feanor was essentially you know was decreed essentially by Iluvatar, then logically the cost of that birth must have been decreed by Iluvatar. It's not like he didn't know, right? It's not like Feanor's born and Muriel is languishing and Iluvatar is like, oops, I uh, guess I uh, miscalculated there, right? Took a little bit too much out of her fail. Do better next time, right? That's not Iluvatar, right? So Aule is saying this happened. This was caught. He was the cause of it. Iluvatar was the cause of Muriel's death. And so therefore it's not an evil. And almost says nonsense. Look at its consequences. It is clearly an evil. The grief and the doubt that it is bringing about is plainly an evil. It's just, this is not how Iluvatar works, right? So his premise would be, I think, the logical extension of Olmo's claim here, starting with his claim about death, is in a sense the cost of Feanor. It's not that Aule is wrong. But the cost of Feanor's death, of Feanor's birth, would not have been fatal to Mirio in Marda, in Arda unmarred. Uh, I know that Tolkien loves the internal rhyme of Arda marred. Um, I know he loves that. But can I just say that makes it really hard to talk about in a classroom setting because I get all tongue-tied. Uh, but anyway. Um, so, Okay. So that's how I understand his extension of this. Like we, we know that it's a result of Artemard because of um, because of the grief and the doubt that has come from it. Right? Um, uh, he Iluvatar does not impose grief in of his prime motion, and the death of Muriel has brought sorrow to Amon. Therefore, QED Iluvatar did not himself directly will the death of Muriel. It's different to say that the death of Muriel is the consequence of a thing that Iluvatar did. That's not the same thing as to say he willed her death or he brought about her death, right? Um, had Arda not been marred, she wouldn't have died. Um, so again, that's not in that sense. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, Matt says, almost claim is based on the notion that grief is the result of evil. Uh, that may be debatable, though. Uh, yes. As a result of evil seems exactly his argument. Um, yeah. Um Yes. Sorry. I'm trying to think about it carefully before I respond there, Matt. I believe that is fair to say. Um, grief is clearly an evil. 
and it is not something that Iluvatar is going to bring about of his prime motion. Um, yeah. Now, I'm not trying to dodge the fact, and I realized that I was setting myself up when I was saying this. Yes, Iluvatar has been briefed about the fact that Arda is marred. So I'm not trying to get him off on a technicality, right? Like, well, since uh, in Arda unmarred, Muriel wouldn't have died, then you can't pin that on Iluvatar. Just not his fault Arda's marred, right? And you could say, and you could say, and it would be perfectly right to say it, that, of course, he knew perfectly well that Arda was marred, and he certainly should have been able to foresee the death of Muriel as a consequence. Um, but here's where free will enters into the picture, though, because it is clear that Muriel's will was involved in her death. Um, that is, she did not, in fact, fall off a cliff. Um, her will was involved in her death, and we're going to get to some more explicit discussion of that. Um, that Iluvatar puts by his prime motion people in situations where grief can arise is clear. That definitely happens. But that doesn't mean that he's bringing about grief as its primary, as the primary motion, as in his primary motion. He's not making them experience grief. He's putting them in a situation where they have to make a choice, a difficult choice. And if they choose, and there is a path open to them that will lead to grief. But it's not his, and he initiated the chain. He put them in the position where they have to make that decision. But that doesn't mean that he caused the grief through his prime, that's what he means, that's what I believe, what Omo means by his prime motion, the prime motion of Iluvatar. Do you see the distinction there? They are free, and he respects their free will. Muriel's death is connected from um, Muriel's death is connected to her free will. Um, yeah, now, excellent. Both Michael and Kevin are both thinking about the third theme of Iluvatar, uh, whose beauty comes chiefly uh, from its sadness. Uh, Kevin's wondering what Nianna's job description would have been in Arda Unmarred, and I have no idea. Um, but, um, uh, okay, so Mike Michael was, at, was saying, was the sorrow in the third theme part of the original plan, or was it Eru's response to Morgoth? Um, well, I mean, it is... In fact, it is the latter. It happens in response to Morgoth's, uh, you know, to Melkor's discord, right? It is explicitly a response to that. Would it have happened anyway? Is that a thing that uh, Iluvatar would have introduced? I say no. Um, after the music ends, when Iluvatar says that... Um, no one can alter the music in his despite, and that even Melkor shall prove an instrument uh, uh, of Iluvatar's glory. Um, 
that even the worst of what he does is going to redound to the glory of Iluvatar. That is what Tolkien, I believe, is illustrating, and for my money, illustrating as powerfully as anyone in literature ever has. I don't know of any literary treatments that do this better uh, than the Ainuindale. Fuller, in some places, perhaps, but Tolkien does it really, really well. Um, his talk about the beauty of the sorrow in the third, uh, uh, of, in the third theme and of Niena's pity and sorrow. Um, are Tolkien's depictions of some of the of what it looks like for Iluvatar to take the evils that come of the bad choices that people with free will from Melkor on down make and how those things bring about the greater glory of Iluvatar. Um, they remain evil and yet good comes from them. Um, so in that sense, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, from a narrative standpoint, the third theme is absolutely and explicitly a response to Melkor's uh, discord. Uh, and I think theologically, I think that that's, that's what we're seeing. When Iluvatar makes that statement at the end of the music, he's not saying when, when he's talking about things redounding to his glory and, and not changing the music in his despite. He's not talking about the future. He's that's a commentary on what just happened. OK, anyway, so. Um, OK. Uh, yeah. Um Yes, Bruce is saying, and, uh, uh, and and Bruce, I agree, these things are all tied into this, and Kevin's talking about similar things. Um, Christian doctrine says that the incarnation and passion of Christ is a response to the fall. Like it, it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the fall, right? If humans hadn't sinned, then Jesus wouldn't have been incarnated and he wouldn't have had to die. Um but as Bruce says, Christian theology also says that the death of Christ was a plan from eternity past. Um, yes, and both are true. Um, with an omniscient God, the distinction between a response to Melkor and Eru's plan all along isn't a real distinction. Yes, that is true. Again, Iluvatar's not winging it. He's not being caught by surprise by any of these things, right? Um, uh, exactly. That is part of the premise. And I don't, I think that those things, Bruce, apply quite plainly to Iluvatar here. Yes, uh, Kevin was just quoting what I was about to quote. Oh, Felix Culpa. Um, uh, oh, fortunate fall. Um, the fortunate sin of Adam. Um, the sin of Adam was a really bad thing. And it has brought about, you know, lots and lots and lots of suffering throughout the world. But um, it also brought about the incarnation and the redemption, a beauty greater and more profound even than the unfallen world would have been, uh, perhaps, though we can't speculate about that. We have no real grounds to speculate about that. Um, um, in response to the marring of, you know, what looked like plan A, plan B was uh, even greater. But exactly as Bruce, Bruce is pointing out, when you have an, on, an omnipotent and eternal God, it's not an improvisation. Right. It 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 was the plan. Um, it is evil and yet good to have been precisely. 
precisely. Um, exactly, John. Uh, it is the uh, it is the the way in which God is understood to be operating outside of time that makes the, what seem to us from within time paradoxes uh, to work out. It's all in Boethius. Uh, we did a class on that, um, uh, a Mythgard Academy session on that. Um, okay, exactly. So, um, but again, now the question comes back to that. So that framework, the sort of framework of redemption is, seems to be there, right? But again, now, in Christian theology, it's the sin of Adam. That's the issue, right? Uh, the, sin of, the sin of Adam is the marring which needs to be healed, which needs to be redeemed. And it's through Christ that the world is redeemed. That's the Christian theological premise. Um, but what about the elves? What about the elves? All of this is pre-Adam, so what about the elves? And um, I think, and who was talking about this? Stephen, maybe, um, was suggesting that um, uh, was suggesting that the sin of Melkor, essentially the discord of Melkor at the beginning, um, is the. Um, Like, basically, sort of the peril. Like, that's when Arda is marred. That's when sin enters the world. So, uh, sort of inviting us to think about the sin of Melkor being the thing that changed the game thereafter, right? And in some ways, you can even say, you can even see, perhaps, no, it wasn't you, Stephen, it's somebody else, sorry. I don't remember who it was who said that. Um, that, um, in a sense, In a sense, I think, okay, I'm about to say a bold thing. You can see perhaps Tolkien trying to make sense of the concept of original sin, of the fall of the world, of the marring of the world, to make sense of that in a way that traditional Christian doctrine does not. One of the things which is not super clear uh, in Christian theological tradition is why. Why Adam's sin? Why so much was riding on the sin of those two people, right? Adam and Eve. Okay, so they were the first ones to sin. Granted, but why should that change the world, the whole world? Right. The mechanism of that, why God responds to Adam and Eve's sin, not only by pointing out the change that happens to them and the, in their own circumstances, but by saying, yeah, the entire earth is, is, is different now. Right. I'm going to change the earth as a consequence of your sin. That that's not a question that I, I Christian theology answers really clearly. Right. Notice, though that um, Tolkien's system engages that somewhat more directly. If you date the marring of the world, not from the sin of Adam, 
not from the sin of one of the children, but from the sin of Melkor. And since Melkor was one of the people who was involved in forming the world, of course it makes sense that Arda would be marred, right? Because one of its sub-creators, right, one of the people to whom, one of the instruments through whom the world was created was busily messing it up at the time, right? It becomes easy to see how Melkor's own bad choices leads directly to the marring of Arda. That cause and effect between Melkor's sin and Arda's marring is much simpler, much simpler, and much clearer and more explicit than the, the causal cause and effect relationship between the sin of Adam and the marring of the world um, in Christian theology. Uh, do you see what I mean by that? So, again, I, the reason I call it a bold statement is that I seem to be implying that he's, like, improving on Christian theology, uh, which would be a bold thing to accuse Tolkien of doing. Uh, so I'm not accusing uh, Tolkien of uh, doing that. Um, I'm not sure what I'm doing. I'm just stating that it's that. I, yes, I'm saying if if we see it that way, if we say, OK, so the elves don't need an atom, right? The elves don't need Tolkien does seem to be considering the question, the possibility. Um, no, he's not considering the possibility. He is stating the certainty that Arda is marred. The world is in the same is is in the kind of imperfect state that the post fall of Adam world is described uh, in Christian tradition. Right? It's not just that people are prone to sin. Is that the world is messed up. Um, you know, death all over the place. Uh, and, you know, death and suffering all over the place. Um, yeah, yeah. So now several of you, um, uh, several of you are um, quoting passages of the Bible that I'm very familiar with. I'm not uh, I'm not even I'm not I'm not here myself critiquing Christian theology. I'm just pointing out the difference between what seems to be the schema that Tolkien is establishing and the schema that Christian theology establishes. That's all I'm pointing out. Um, uh, and. Yeah, that's all I'm pointing out. It is true. I know that. You know, the Bible talks about like the world groaning for redemption, and I know it talks about um, you know, man being designed to rule the world um, and that it makes sense that their sin would affect the world. I agree. But again, notice that even there, what is not described is the cause and effect. Yeah, but how did it cause it? Right. How what does um, what does the sin of a person? What does Adam sin? How did Adam's sin bring about earthquakes and hurricanes and things like that? Right. I mean, like how? What was the mechanism? What is the cause and effect by which that happened? Right. I'm just saying that that's not something that the Bible really talks about. It doesn't really, ex- only in very general terms. Um, uh, Tolkien's system addresses that much more clearly, I think. Um, so, finding himself in super deep theological waters, right, and having to try to figure out about original sin and free will. And so, Alyssa was pointing out, and she is very right about this, um, that uh, when Muriel's when Muriel di- when Muriel's death is a result, right? When 
Iluvatar bestows Fanor upon the Eldar, which is remember that's a good thing. It's not. It's not. It's not just mean. Um, when he bestows Fanor upon the Eldar, knowing the cost that it's going to have for the mother, um, the death of Muriel and its subsequent grief and doubt, right, caused by it, is the death of Muriel is, as Alyssa points out, Iluvatar respecting Muriel's free will. But Alyssa extends that to say the will being respected, the free will being respected by Iluvatar there is not only Muriel's, it's Melkor's as well. Remember that Iluvatar's words to Melkor are not go ahead and try to disrupt the world. I'm going to stop you. Try, but you can't. No matter how you attempt to create disharmony in the music, you will find that any, uh, any, no matter how you set your will, any notes that come out of your mouth, in fact, will be harmonious. That's not what Iluvatar says. That's not how the world works. He respects the will, the free will, even of Melkor. Melkor is permitted to exercise his will and to bring about marring and discord and grief and doubt and all of these other things. He's allowed to mar Arda. The way in which the choices of Melkor, even those choices, are going ultimately to redound to Iluvatar's glory is not through his prevention of those choices or his complete elimination of their consequences. He's going to respect even Melkor's will. And he's going to work within that and bring all of that. And that's where we get into the third theme. That's where we get into uh, the sorrow in which its beauty was, uh, uh, was uh, you know, chiefly consisted. Um, yeah, exactly. David says we're now veering headlong into the Athrobeth. My, my hope here, David, is that by the time we get to the Athrobeth, we're going to be able to click, th- clip through that thing because we will have already like thought through all of these issues. But I'm not going to just save it for the Athrobeth because it's here. It's happening already, right? Um, and we will see the Athrobeth being the place where Tolkien is going to work through this stuff most clearly and I think most effectively. Um, but the Athrobeth is the consequence of this. Right. And so we, too, will be prepared to receive the Athrobeth when it comes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're right, Kevin. There will still be plenty to say. I certainly agree. I certainly agree. Um, OK. Let's talk about Olmo for a second. Um, I, Karita, I think um, I, I think you were. Um, the one who was pointing out that <clears throat> even in his earlier stuff here, uh, even in the earlier sections uh, of this uh, uh, of this argument, Olmo is still kind of saying, "Can I remind everybody that we should be not forgetting about Melkor? Right? Can I? Am I the only one concerned that Melkor is here with it? You know. Uh, so we made the choice to bring the Marer of Arda to Amon." Now we're finding that there is grief and sorrow breaking out in Amon. And we're all like, gosh, we thought that this that we had created a little, you know, unmarred subsection of Arda here under our direct supervision. 
why is there marring all of a sudden? And here's almost saying, gosh, go figure. Who'd have thunk, right? Uh, maybe that wasn't such a smart idea in the first place, was it? Um, yeah, yeah, I do think he's implying that. Um, uh, but I love that last comment most, the bit that he adds at the end. Also, he loved the elves and men afterwards, but otherwise than Aule, belie believing that they should be left free, however perilous that might seem. However, So Aule loved the elves very much, and his love drove him to want to bring them over, to want to care for them, to want to shelter them, right? We can't just leave them in Middle-earth, where bad stuff could happen to them. Look, bad stuff's already happening to them by the shores of Quivianen, right? Um, we, we, we've got we've to we've bring them in and protect them, right? Olmo loves them, but wants to see them free, even if that seems perilous, even if that seems risky. Let them be free. Let them do their own thing. Let them make their own choices. Um, however perilous that might seem. Um, but of course the other implication is that the love of Aule is more, yeah, uh, more possessive, Mary. That seems, that seems fair. That seems fair. Um, he is, and this speaks to his character, right? We see Aule in the time that, you know, cause he is one that gets lines, right? Um, and when we see him acting, when we see him speaking in the published Silmarillion, we see him as teacher, right? But he is active, right? He wants to have students whom he can teach. That's not, you know, he's not wanting slaves of whom he will, you know, whom he will dominate. Um, but there is a controlling element. There is a possessive element potentially there. And we see that Aule, in the story of Aule and Yavanna that Tolkien writes, which notice Tolkien hasn't written yet, still hasn't written it yet, right? Um, so the Aule of the story of Aule of, and Yavanna, the Aule of the story of the making of the dwarves that's in the published Silmarillion is an Aule yet to be written, is an Aule that comes after this. This Aule that we just read is the, is the, 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 the forerunner of that Aule. And that Aule in that story, remembering forward, as I say, and exploring the Lord of the Rings, remembering forward to that story of Aule and Yavanna is one who's this close to following, honestly. Right. I mean, he 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 doesn't. Right. Um, but, um, you know, it's uh, it's close. Right. It's close. Right. And Stephen says, which of the two almost had a fall between Aule and Olmo? Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yes. Yes. Um, and Brian, you're absolutely right that the kind of love that Aule has is going to lead some of his followers to turn to evil, like those who follow in Aule's footsteps. There's a, um, you know, we, we've talked about this before, right? I mean, the, there's a, um, a pretty bad, uh, uh, you know, record among his followers, certainly. Um, yeah, Michael says, small wonders, protégés, turn out how they do. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, it's not like all of them, right? Um, yeah, Michelle says that uh, Aule is like a helicopter parent to the elves, uh, where uh, Olmo is one of them, is one of the let them make their own mistakes sort. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Aule, definitely the uh, the helicopter parent. Um, that's exactly it. Um, um, but um, but I want to go back for a second to uh, sorry. Uh, Mark made a, a great point that basically the Valar have like brought the snake to the garden, right? Uh, yeah, in a sense. I mean, that's I think what almost kind of trying to point out here, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Bruce, you're right that Omo, uh, Omo does have, I mean, I'll say, you know, was close as well, right? Um, so it's not that uh, Omo's protégés have a flawless track record, right? Um, I agree. But um, I'll say is peril to Aule himself, right? Olmo never almost falls like Aule almost falls, but his servant does. Aule's servants, again, not all of them, but there are two very conspicuous ones, right, with which we are familiar. Um, uh, Saruman and, and, and uh, Sauron, of course, who uh, definitely go a great deal further uh, than Ose did and a great deal worse. Okay, hey, I have an idea. Let's keep going. Yovana pipes in. Let's hear from Aule's spouse. Then Yovana spoke, and though she was the spouse of Aule, she leaned rather to Olmo. My lord Aule errs, she said, in that he speaks of Finway and Muriel as being free in heart and thought from the shadow, as if that proved that naught that befell them could come from the shadow or from the marring of Arda. Ah, she's introducing an interesting distinction, right? Remember that that was Aule's premise. Finway is not you know, Finway and Muriel were not afflicted by the shadow, and so therefore their child couldn't have been afflicted by the shadow, and their child was sent by Iluvatar anyway. Therefore, their their child is not does not born with the shadow. QED, right? And she says, "Yeah, no, right? They might be free in heart. No, neither Muriel nor Finway ever served Melkor in thought or deed, right? Um, they were free in heart in that way, free in heart and thought from the shadow." But that doesn't prove that naught that befell them could come from the shadow or from the marring of Arda. But even as the children are not as we, who came from beyond Arda wholly and in all our being, but are both spirit and body, and that body is of Arda, and by Arda was nourished. So the shadow worketh not only upon spirits, but has marred the very Hron of Arda, and all Middle-earth is perverted by the evil of Melkor who has wrought in it as mightily as any one among us here. Therefore, none of those who awoke in Middle-earth and there dwelt before they came hither have come here wholly free. The failing of the strength of the body of Muriel may then be ascribed with some reason to the evil of Arda Mard, and her death be a thing unnatural. And that this should appear in Amman seemeth to me, as to Omo, a sign to be heeded." So it is Yavanna who is making the argument that I had alluded to before, right? That the physical body of the elves is the vehicle of corruption, right? Notice, by the way, that here Tolkien in his subcreation again institutes a clearer cause and effect than a, a similar effect as Christian theology, but with clearer cause, right? 
Christian theology says, many of you, of course, who know it will think of Romans chapter 7. Um, Paul, of course, very famously talks about the spirit and the flesh, right? And how his spirit longs to do evil, but the, or good, but the evil of the flesh is always with him, that the, the, the war between his spirit and his flesh, um, uh, that concept, right, is clearly there. But, but, but again, what, what is, why? What is the mechanism, right? How is that, like, passed down to us from Adam exactly? Um, Yavana says clearly, right, because the very substance, the entire physical world of Arda is marred because Melkor made it, right? He made it and he messed it up. So everything about the physical world of Arda is marred. The, the Thea, when it comes in, is not marred and not shadowed because it comes direct from Iluvatar, from outside, and is therefore does not have its source in Arda Mard, but the body does. And therefore, inescapably, there is shadow. The consequences of the shadow, the unnatural results of the marring of Arda are going to be seen no matter what the choices of the elves are. They are going to be... So, are elves fallen in some sense? Yes. In some sense, right? And this is where I think it would be best... I've been sort of talking about things in parallel with Christian doctrine because we can't... I think it would be silly to think about this in the absence of talking about Christian doctrine because all of those things are plainly at play here. Uh, and Tolkien is clearly thinking about and working at that framework. However, I think that um, it would be best, having acknowledged that and sort of seen those parallels, I think it would be best to kind of let that go. Because... Here's what I mean. If you know Christian theology well, you might be tempted to argue against Yovana and say, that's not how it works, right? Now, Yovana might be right and Yovana might be wrong. This is just Yovana's opinion, and she's not omniscient. But if we come into this saying, we know what Christian doctrine teaches, and what Christian doctrine teaches must be that which is true in Tolkien's world, because he, you know, he was he was adhering fundamentally to Christian theology. Therefore, we know that Yavanna must be wrong. I don't think we can be confident in that. Um, I think that we need to watch that play out. I think we need to be open to the idea that the. I think that we need to be open to the idea that these concepts and doctrines as they are being manifested within the context of Tolkien's subcreation might not completely jive with Christian theology. And I would emphasize even more strongly Tolkien's concepts of uh, Tolkien's integration of these fundamental doctrinal Christian doctrinal ideas into his subcreation might also not jive with the particular understanding of those Christian doctrines that many of us have who are coming from very different Christian traditions. If you come from a modern evangelical Christian tradition, you may very well understand the sin of Adam. You might 
understand Romans 7. You might understand, you know, the Felix Culpa uh, uh, and the relationship between free will and providence differently than Tolkien, the early 20th century Roman Catholic, did. Um, And so we need to be cautious there. Um, That's why I would say... If you're if you feel the impulse to argue with Yovana here and say she's getting it wrong and that's not how it's that's not how it works, try to resist that. Try to resist that uh, because I think it's important to resist that and um, uh, sort of work through this. So okay, um, yes, da- uh, David Urbach, I agree that it sounds like Yovana is arguing for original sin in the elves. Well, no. I would say drop original sin. Drop original sin. But stop talking about original sin. Because, again, you see, that's that's a, an Adam and Eve situation. This is not Adam and Eve. What Tolkien is doing within his subcreation here is imagining the circumstance, the extra Adamic circumstance of the elves, right? Um, we will see that he is not kicking Adam and Eve out the window, right? Uh, And the concept of the fall of Adam and Eve out the window. And that shall be seen before we get to the end of this volume. But um, to say Yovana is arguing for original sin in the elves is to project Christian doctrine about Adam and Eve onto the elves. But it's not that. What she's saying is different from that. It is... Uh, so the word hron is it, it's the sub, the physical substance of Arda. Um, it's similar to the word hroa, right? The physical body of the elves. Um, it's the the body, the substance of Arda. All fleshly things, right? All physical matter that the world is made out of has been marred by Melkor in the creation of the world, right? Um, It's perverted by the evil of Melkor who has wrought in it as mightily as anyone among us here. We've all had our, we all played, we the Valor all played our part in the making of the very substance of which Arda, Melkor did too. And it's all tainted, therefore, by his evil choice, right? Um, Therefore, elves in as much as they have bodies, are subject to the shadow, are sh- subject to the unnatural conditions of Arda Mard. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Mark uh, says Tolkien is skirting close to several historical Christian heresies here. Um, was that one of the reasons that Tolkien was never happy with publishing the Silmarillion? No, I, I see no evidence of that. Um, uh, no, I, I see no evidence. But I, I, I hear you. <laughs> and yes, I agree. He certainly is. Uh, he certainly is. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, 
Yes, Karita, exactly. Uh, Christians have been disagreeing over what the fall means for a long time. Yes, yes, they have. Um, uh, so, yes, it is certainly true that um, uh, we need to be sort of hearing what Tolkien is putting forward, essentially. Um, the question, we are welcome, you're, you know, one is free, of course, to compare and contrast afterwards, right? To say, we see what Tolkien puts forward within his subcreation and how he decides to make his subcreation work, right? Metaphysically. Um, once we see that, you're, one, you're then perfectly free, of course, to compare and contrast between that uh, and other Christian thinking. Um, I have no objection to that procedure. The thing that I want to be cautious of is not to be resistant to understanding what Tolkien seems to be saying. And again, Yavanna, these are all opinions, uh, the different Valar here, and they're not all going to be uh, uh, endorsed at the end. But, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, Kevin, I agree. Kevin Hensler points out that if you're going to, if you're going to create a second, if you're going to, you know, if, if you're going to like subcreate a world with a, with a, with another sentient race, especially an immortal one, you're going to get closer to heresy because you know, that, that just does not fit within the, that, that's not one of the parameters of traditional Christian theology. So yeah, absolutely. I agree, uh, Kevin, it does seem to be part. And this is honestly one of the things that I find most fascinating about this whole thing, right? Is to see Tolkien is walking a really interesting line here, theologically speaking, right? If anybody had any doubts, you know, anyone who reads The Lord of the Rings and reads Tolkien's statements in his letters, you know, where he's saying things like it's a fundamentally Catholic work, um, anybody who doubts that, who wants to say, like, ah, that was just lip service, it's not really. Tolkien's, uh, you know, Tolkien's subcreation is not really fundamentally Christian in any kind of serious way. I defy anybody to read Morgoth's ring carefully and still say that. Like, he is clearly thinking about this stuff, right? Uh, and we can see him thinking through precisely these kinds of things. Given the parameters of my subcreation, right? Given these things, what then? How, you know, how, the, how shall we then live, right? How, how can, you know, um, he is working these things through very carefully, but he's walking a line. He could just say, "Okay, you know what? Forget the, forget the. I'm 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 not going to insist on its being Christian, right? I'm just going to say it's it's not Christian. He doesn't do that. He's not gonna he's not gonna go go off that side, right? But he's also not willing to go off on the other side either, and say, "Okay, I'm going to chuck out anything which seems to be." Potentially, Mark, as you're suggesting, you know, leading. I mean, he. I suspect that Tolkien knew of you know many of those historical Christian heresies, um, and he um, he is not um, uh, yeah. He doesn't seem to be bothered, right? Um, he's willing to go on anyway, right? To kind of take the risk. Uh, it's a really fascinating, both artistic and intellectual and spiritual 
kind of journey Tolkien is going on here. Um, all because of the remarriage of Finway. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, anyway, yes. Okay. Um, yeah. George says, by meditating so long on Melkor's fall and Arda Mard, could Tolkien be thinking that original sin was not Adam's but Satan's fall? Okay. I'm going to... I'm going to I I'm going to spend a little bit of time putting a buffer of disclaimers in front of the statement I'm about to make because I'm about to uh if I didn't it would seem that I was violating one of my own personal pet peeves. Um so I'm going to do my disclaimer buffers. Um this does not Okay, no, no. I'll, I'll make the statement, then I'll do the disclaimers. Here is my statement. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis comes very close to saying almost exactly that. Now the disclaimers. It is one of my personal pet peeves when people are making arguments about either Tolkien or Lewis's theology or works and cite one to, to cite like Lewis to support the argument that they're making about Tolkien as if the two of them shared a brain, which is very clear that they did not do. Right. Uh, so please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that uh, because C.S. Lewis seems to me to imply something quite close to that at the very least. Um, and here, if you're interested, I'm thinking primarily of his argument in the problem of pain. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, I, there's much more that could be said about that. But anyway, I, I, Lewis was very, talked a lot uh, in more than one of his books about how, yes, there's the sin of Adam, but evil was already going on in the world. And there was, there were, there were those who had already fallen prior to uh, prior to Adam. Uh, so when it comes to the question of thinking about the circumstances, the evil circumstances of the world, somebody might have a prior claim than Adam on that point. Right. Um, this is a thing that Lewis um, talked about explicitly. Um, I am not saying that that proves that Tolkien thought exactly the same thing that Lewis did. I'm not even making a firm argument about what Lewis thought. Um, what I'm saying is that concept was clearly there. So the way that you, in my opinion, can think about stuff like that, like Lewis's arguments in connection to Tolkien, the relevance that it has is that knowing that this issue explicitly was coming up in Lewis's thought um, means that Tolkien certainly encountered these ideas. We can prove that Tolkien encountered these ideas because we know he read C.S. Lewis's books. We know that he talked to C.S. Lewis about these things. So I'm not saying that this means that Tolkien thought that way, but I'm saying that we know, like, uh, so uh, the idea that um, the, you know, the marring of the world might maybe have more to do with, uh, uh, you know, has more to do with Melkor than it does with any Adam figure um, is um, I, I only, 
I think it's relevant. I think it's relevant. It doesn't if, if, if Tolkien were thinking in those directions, I wouldn't find it strange. That's all I'm saying. If Tolkien were thinking in that direction, uh, I wouldn't find it strange. Um, yeah. Anyway. OK. Uh, yeah. And Stephen, I think that this is a really good point. Um, Stephen says, given the difference between Tolkien's world and the Christian world, that is like it, the, so the world of Tolkien's subcreation is not the circumstances are not the same as ours. Right. Therefore, he says, I'm not sure we can necessarily say that Tolkien is commenting directly on Catholic teaching. Um, I agree. He may be toying with the ideas um, and able to work some things out, but it's not directly applicable. Yes, I agree with that. I agree with that. And that, I think, Stephen, is the best way for us to be thinking about the relationship between these Christian theological ideas and Tolkien's ideas here. He's not um, refining them. He's not, you know, um, uh, like declaring his independence from them. Um, He's uh, not—what he's doing is step one. I am imagining— a different world, which is not the same world as ours. Now, within that world, right, I am, but he is nevertheless, in a sense, Stephen, I guess the way that I would say this is part of his, part of the creative and intellectual, you know, experiment of his sub-creation in the first place is this is a different world, but it is a different world related to the same God, in essence, right? Um, He is still imagining Iluvatar, a God who seems to me uh, to have, I don't, I've had fights with Tolkien scholars about this, but I see very little reason to believe that Iluvatar has qualities that the Christian God lacks or lacks qualities that the Christian God has. Um, I'm open to being convinced of that, but I haven't seen it. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, that seems to me another sort of part of That seems to be the thing that he doesn't... You know, I talked about him walking a narrow path. That seems to be the thing that he's sort of holding on to, right? It is almost like asking the question... How would God, our God, the Christ, the Catholic God, right? How would God relate? To, I've, I've invented this world, right? I've 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 subcreated this world. How would God operate within this world, right? Um, and um, uh, yeah, yeah. Stephen says, in a sense, he's doing much like Lewis did with Narnia, though in a different frame. Yeah, I think there are similarities between those projects. Um, in some ways, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, no, I agree. Kevin and Chris are both agreeing that uh, about, you know, the it being. It seems kind of obvious that Iluvatar and God are kind of you know the same. Um, 
Yeah, exactly, Mary. That was one of the things that I'm thinking about, of course, is the passage in Letter 131 where he talks about his mythology being acceptable to one who believes in the Trinity. That's exactly the thing, Mary, that leads me to think that it's it's the person of God himself, right? The, the nature of God himself, which is the sort of given that he begins with, right? Um, not particular, like, the working out, like the full, fully articulated... Um, you know, theology, cosmology, and soteriology of Christianity, right? Um, because those things are, in their fundamental nature, determined by our world, right? The world that we're living in. And his world is a different world, right? And so it can't be identical. It can't be exactly the same. Okay. Um, speaking of deep theological waters... Golly. Okay. Niena. Sorry, soteriology, Christopher. Uh, that is the study of salvation. Um, what, how salvation is brought about through Christ. That's the fancy word for that in the Christian tradition. Um, um, now, Matt says, I thought he said it was the same world. <laughs> Darn it, Matt. I was hoping nobody was going to point that out. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, actually, I'm not. Actually, I sort of am. I'm a little bit kidding. I'm halfway kidding, Matt. Um, it is the fictional frame, right? The fictional frame is that it is really our world. But the fr fictional frame is explicitly fictional from the beginning, right? Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, no, okay, oh man, everybody's calling me on this now. I wanted to move on to Nyana. No, okay, that's fine. All right, let's think this through. It's interesting. I wasn't thinking about this, but I should. I wasn't thinking about this because I didn't want to. Uh, I have a pretty, uh, I have, I'm pretty resourceful when it comes to not thinking about things I don't want to. Um, okay. All right. All right. We start with we start with the Book of Lost Tales. <laughs> Sorry. Hang on a second. Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to pretend I've advanced to the next slide. Several of you are... <laughs> several of you... Several of you are saying several different things, and many of you are laughing at me, which is perfectly fair. Um, uh, all right. Um... Several of you are talking about how he abandoned that framework, right, um, over time. And it's certainly, I think it is not, it's, I think it is not questionable that Tolkien's concept of the similar, of the coherence of our world in Middle-earth um, as, that that changes over time, right? The mythic 
premise of the Book of Lost Tales is that this is the mythic prehistory of our world. You can tell on account of all of the myth of explanation that goes on in it, right? This is how our world came to be this way. This is why cats and dogs fight. This is why Ireland exists, all that stuff, right? This is how where rainbows come from. This is why the moon has spots, all of that, all of those things, right, that we get in the Book of Lost Tales. And of course, most importantly, or rather most deeply relevant to the mythology, why do we have all of these stories about elves? Um, why do you sometimes get a a certain feeling in certain places and hear music off in the distance and, and think about elves and all that kind of thing that apparently you do if you read his early poetry. Okay. Um, that was the original premise. Now, as his story, I'm going to say his story to characterize everything, right? I'm talking about the whole thing, right? As his story becomes less mythical, less purely mythical and more historical, the idea, the premise that it could be understood in some sense as our actual history, as being really connected with our, as explaining our world in the way that the Book of Lost Tales claims to explain things about our world, um, that weakens. It's one thing to say that the Book of Lost Tales, like the stories of the Lost Tales, happened sometime in the ancient prehistory of our world. It becomes impossible to say that the events of the Lord of the Rings happened in the ancient prehistory of our world. Almost impossible. Where's the archaeological evidence? Why is the, the technological advances, right? If Saruman invented gunpowder in the Third Age, what happened, right? You know, it's like there, there would be, um, there would be evidence, right? So again, my point is just that the idea, and I think that you can see him weakening the idea, you can see him making the frame concept, the fictional frame of the Lord of the Rings, being that it's our world, sounds more whimsical and less serious. Not that the Book of Lost Tales is particularly serious, but do you see what I mean by that? He acknowledges that it's not, you know, in the concerning hobbits, um, uh, uh, prologue um, in the, you know, in the texts, there is still a kind of fictional play of the fact that this is a history from within our world and that these texts somehow kind of came down to him, right? But that seems to me different in spirit than the um seems to me different in spirit than the frame of the Book of Lost Tales. Do you see what I mean by that? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, right. Um, and remember, what's happening now by now, I mean in the 1940s and 50s, right? Now, in the, the now of the time of Morgoth's ring, 
right? In the post-publication of The Lord of the Rings attempt to revise the Silmarillion. This is what we've been talking about from the very beginning of this discussion, right? These two things, the history, right? The, the, uh, the feigned history of the Lord of the Rings and the ancient mythic past, which was always linked to our world explicitly, right? Um, those two things are coming into collision and he's trying to make them work together. And um, I agree he has not just said, give it all up. You're Because you're right, George. Alfwin is still there, right? We still have the frame, right? Um, yes, exactly, Christopher. That's the passage I was referring to when I was talking about concerning hobbits. About hobbits being referred to as living still in the lands where they once lived in the northwest of the old world. Yes, exactly. But that's exactly the passage I'm referring to, Chris, where I say the spirit of that frame, the spirit of that conceit, uh, that the Lord, the world of Middle-earth is our world at a different time, um, is, in my opinion, explicitly less plausible, more playful, um, more done with a little bit more of a wink than before, if you see what I mean. It's, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Brian says, over time, the particular stories Tolkien was telling about his subcreated world became more interesting than the fictional frame, and that frame became somewhat unnecessary. I think in some ways, yes, in some ways, that if we are going to have the marriage of his historical romance and his mythology. And that marriage is what he's been trying to navigate throughout all of these materials we've been reading and discussing. If that marriage is going to come about, the result, I think, is necessarily going to leave that frame behind. I think that one of the things that he is coming to grips with, in part, here, is that it, it, it can't actually be maintained. That frame has to be abandoned. Um, he has to, this has to just be a subcreated world, and that needs to be okay. Now, Tolkien's not afraid of subcreation, right? It's not like it has to be real or else it's not worth telling. We know he's defended quite strongly the freedom uh, to be a lover of nature and not her slave, right? To be a subcreator. Um, but we also know that he doesn't let go of old story ideas easily. We know that he is extremely conservative, uh, that he conserves what he's done, um, and he does not want to depart from it. And I think that we still, still see him playing. I, Chris, that passage that you quoted about hobbits, uh, remaining in the Northwest of the old world, um, seems to me to be, notice how, how like, how almost like the Hobbit narrator that sounds, right? It seems to me almost that he's taking refuge in something like the Hobbit narrator's point of view or voice to continue that frame, but to continue it playfully and not with the kind of earnest seriousness that we still see him preserve, not only in the Book of Lost Tales, but goodness, remember the Notion Club papers, right? And the way in which he was connecting the history of Numenor with 
medieval history and King Horn and all that stuff, right? I mean, we just spent a lot of time talking about that in our sour and defeated uh, discussion of last year. So um, that impulse, right? Uh, that explanatory, uh, you know, using a sub-created world to explain some, you know, to explain traditions within our world, that impulse is not gone by any sense, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think what seems to me to be happening here and I think we, I, I do believe, um, as uh, one of you was suggesting, um, that uh, this is this time. These texts that we're reading, this is when this is happening. This is when Tolkien is wrestling with this. And I think it's these things that, is, that ultimately... Is seems to be leading him to set aside that frame. Gosh, maybe this justifies Christopher in dropping the frame from the Silmarillion and undermines my complaints and whinging about that earlier on. Well, maybe. Okay. Hey, I have an idea. Let's talk about Nienna. Then Nienna spoke, who, ca who came to Valmar seldom and speaks never at all, but sat now upon the left hand of Manway. In the use of justice there must be pity, which is the consideration of the singleness of each that cometh under justice. Which of you, Valar, in wisdom, will blame these children, Finwe and Miriel? For the children are both strong and without might. Mandos you hold to be the strongest of all there are that are in Arda, being the least moved, and therefore you have dared to commit even the Maror himself to his keeping. Yet I say to you that each fea of the children is as strong as he, for it hath the strength of its singleness impregnable, which cometh to it from Eru, as to us. In its nakedness, that is, the fea in its nakedness, it is obdurate beyond all power that ye have to move it, if it will not. Yet the children are not mighty. In life they are little, and can affect little, and they are young, and they know time only. Their minds are as the hands of their babes, little in grasp, and even that grasp is yet unfilled. How shall they perceive the ends of deeds, or forego the desires which arise from their very nature, the indwelling of the spirit in the body, which is their right condition? Have ye known the weariness of Miriel, or felt the bereavement of Finway? Okay. Uh, first of all, can we appreciate the fact that Nienna just defined pity? We should probably pay attention to that. That seems important. In the use of justice, there must be pity, which is the consideration of the singleness of each that cometh under justice. Pity is the consideration of the singleness of each that cometh under justice. The essence, the personality, as it were, right? The person, the... The, the 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 true essence of a per so to pity considers the singleness so what's the difference between justice and pity justice is impartial justice is applies to all pity 
considers the singleness of all. That cometh under justice. Note, it comes under justice. That's not to say that pity should undo justice. It is the consideration of the singleness of each that cometh under justice. Um, Matt says it appears she puts empathy at the heart of pity. Yeah, I think it's a good way of saying it. The consideration of the singleness of each. Um, I'm not sure that empathy as a concept completely encompasses what she's saying there. I think that there's more that she's saying there than is encompassing, but I think that it comes pretty close. I think that certainly empathy is much of what she is describing there. Um, yes. Now, um, David is wondering, is each coming under justice or is pity coming under justice? So let's, let's think about the syntax here. There must be pity, which is the consideration of the singleness of each that cometh under justice, of each that cometh under justice. Each. Each. I think it's got to be each. I think it's got to be each. Um, pity is the consideration of the singleness of each. You know, each one that cometh under justice. Justice is overall and is therefore, therefore kind of puts all, everybody, into one category, right? But pity considers the singleness of each one, each one, each individual who comes under justice, right? Um, yeah, I, that, that's, David, that's how I read that sentence. Um and this is why pity doesn't necessarily undermine justice. Justice might have to be done, right? But justice also does not... Like, the two of them are not in conflict. Um, you can still have pity for one on whom justice is passed. Justice, like, justice may be meted upon one for whom you experience pity. Um, they don't, they aren't necessarily in contradiction. They don't, um, they are very separate operations, but they don't have to contradict each other. Um, anyway, okay. Which of you will blame these children, Finway and Mirio? The children are both strong and without might. Each of the Fea of the children is as strong as Mando's. Strong in being the least moved. What is Nienna saying about the relationship between the free will of the elves and the marring of Arda? Because it seems to me that this is one of the primary things that she's talking about here. To use the Christian theological term that I've been trying to move away from a bit. Are elves subject to original sin? Niena says 
No. No. The Thea, the Thayer of the children, are strong. They cannot be moved. They cannot be compelled. You cannot, nobody can force them to choose what they don't choose. They have the autonomy to choose. They have the power of choice. They are not made to do wrong. You can't make them. You can't make them. But in that, that's the way in which they're strong. They're fair. The fair of one of the children comes from Eru, from outside of Artemard. But they're also weak. So they're very strong, but they're also very weak. Yet the children are not mighty. In life, they are little and can affect little. And they are young and they know time only. They know time only. The Valar exist within time. They are constrained by time. They can't see the future. They only, they experience time. Time is a constraint of experience. When you are in time, that means that your life is stretched out into a line and you are moving along that line, right? So if you are experiencing time, you, the past is lost to you. You cannot experience that again. The future is inaccessible to you. You cannot attain that yet. The only uh, part of your life that is accessible to you is the current present, and that is constantly fleeting, right? The time at which I began that sentence is gone, and we will never get it again. Um, so, okay. Um, the Valar experience time. They are operating within time, not outside of time. Being bound to Arda, they are bound within time. They experience, but they also have experienced the timeless halls. They existed first in Iluvatar's timeless reality, and then they entered Arda. So now they experience time, but they didn't always. And they have a memory of not doing so, and therefore a totally different perspective on time and on things in general than those who have never experienced anything but time. The elves, their spirit comes from outside Arda, true, but they have no memory of that. They have no experience of that. Their awareness awakens when they are embodied within Arda, and so therefore they know time only. They are young. They are young. Um, their understanding is imperfect. Their will is strong. But they can screw up. So here's how I would paraphrase what Nienna is saying about the free will of elves. They are under no... It is possible for an elf not to screw up. That is possible. They are under no compulsion to sin. But they can. Any of them can. They are little. They are young. They can affect little. They are helpless in, in you know, big picture ways. Um, they make mistakes and are going to make mistakes. How shall they perceive the ends of deeds? How shall they not screw up when they can't know the full consequences of the things that they're choosing? 
how shall they forego the desires which arise from their very nature, which arise from that, their bodies, right? Their physical, fleshly side, the marred side, as Yavana has argued. So their, their will is absolutely free. And yet, under these circumstances, how can you really expect them never to screw up? Have you known the weariness of Mirio or felt the bereavement of Finway? Nianna says, we need to consider the singleness of each of these people. We need to think ourselves into their situations. We need to imagine what it's actually like for them. Is it theoretically possible for them to make all the right decisions? Yes. But it's not going to happen. How can it happen when they are joined to their bodies, which are feeding them, which are marred, and therefore going to be feeding them desires which are going to lead them astray, right? Whether it's just a little bit astray, like Feanor, some of Feanor's desires, some of Finway's desires, um, or whether it's a lot astray, like, I'm not saying that Feanor only went a little bit astray. I'm saying that many of his desires that led him down that road are not necessarily bad desires. Um, his choices were bad. But I'm contrasting him with somebody like Myglin, for instance, whose apparatus seems to have been feeding him worse desires, I think, even than Feanor's. Anyway. Um... No. Uh, we'll move on to Olmo's rebuttal next time. Um, I would try to do one more slide because it's only just after midnight. But given the cans of worms that have been opened up in some of these slides, we probably shouldn't. Um, thank you for your patience uh, tonight. Uh, I hope that the th our theological discussions haven't been too off-putting. These are very deep waters that Tolkien is in, right? And I have found our discussions... Uh, I did not plan to talk about any of that stuff tonight, uh, but I have found our discussions extremely revealing. Um, I don't know about you, but I feel that the... Um, not only the artistic drama, that uh, all of the history of Middle-earth has revealed this sort of artistic drama, right, as Tolkien has been going through this process of discovering and refining his stories, right? Um, but here we're seeing some really deep personal um, uh, sort of struggles and uh, questionings and things by Tolkien. Um, this is... This is uh, really, um, this is really deep stuff, right? Um, and I think it's meat for us to be wrestling with this stuff because Tolkien, I think, pretty clearly was. Um, and in reading these things, we are confronting, um, we are confronting, we should be, I think, confronting these things if we don't then we're not, I think, paying sufficient attention to what Tolkien was going through. This is a big deal. 
um, this is the crisis. Honestly, that's this is the kind of thing. This is the crisis that's going to lead to the non-publication of the Silmarillion. It's a big deal, right? Um, one thing that I hope we will all have at the end of discussing Morgoth's Ring is a better appreciation for why the Silmarillion never got done. Um, so anyway, thanks, everybody. Uh, uh, and I have really enjoyed this. I will see you guys again next week. We'll see how far we can get in the discussion, uh, in the Valar's discussion next week. I hope we've established enough theological foundation that we can move more quickly after this, but we'll see. So I'll see you guys next week. Good night now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.